Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. I'm joined by film critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com and Christy Lemire, film critic for LAist. Also, RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. We begin with John Wick, Chapter 4, starring Keanu Reeves. Uh, the director is Chad Stakelhelski, who uh, has directed all of the Wick films, and the screenplay written by Shay Hatton and Michael Finch. Please start us, Tim, with John Wick, Chapter mm. 4. Mm-hmm. This is hot. He had a little help from David Lech in that first film. 2014. Uh, not quite a decade for four films here, which are really just this one big sort of Homeric Joseph Campbell oh hero's journey. Sort of dipped this one, sort of dipped in elements of the Arabic, a little bit of the Al Hali Ali here, a little bit of the Bhagavad Gita here in this film. Literally cultural references to those uh, Eastern epics in this movie. I really like folks who are bright and do things like that. It just really makes me so happy. Wick is still looking for his release from the table. Uh, this deep organization that runs all of these hitmen and assassins all over the world with these hotels and all that kind of stuff. So that's all still going on. They send this dandy after him. And I mean a dandy. This guy dresses, I mean, really kind of dresses like me. But he he he, he really is a dandy. He's a marquee, played by Bill Skarsgård. He's the weak link in this film. It's just a weak link in this film. It's, it's, it's him and his character. He didn't scare me. I feel like I could take that guy. <laughs> I, I definitely know John Wick could take that guy. But nevertheless, uh, 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 they draw him out by bringing in all of these people to track him, some of whom are his very good friends, including Donnie Yen, the exquisite Donnie Yen, a blind swordsman in this film. And he's just so beautiful the way he works through this film. He's exquisite uh, in this movie. And, and other folks, including this guy that they call the Tracker. Now, the Tracker uh, is this brother with a dog. Yeah. A dog, <laughs> which of course is what's going on in this movie. We're bringing it all back around. Here's the thing: movie's too long. It's just too long. The movie itself is too long. Each of the segments of the movie are too long. The fighting sequences are too long, too long, too long, too long. Everything could be smaller, tighter, cleaner. I, I get it, guys. You have to make it big. It has to be epic. That doesn't necessarily mean long. It just doesn't. If you want to make good, sometimes go for shorter. I love these films. I love this film. It's fantastic. Uh, and, of course, we have uh, one of the final performances from Lance Reddick. Uh, we're going to be seeing him, I know, mm. in a number of productions. Uh, he passed away unexpectedly at the age of 60 earlier this week. It was like seeing him come on screen in this film. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and one of the reasons why I haven't talked much about uh, what actually happens in this movie, because uh, it, it, it's some really prescient stuff that goes on in this movie. I know Lance from way back in the day, way back to uh, Oz uh, and all of that, used to run around with him. And it, it was a really big hit and, you know, to hear about Lance. Uh, uh, Lance was only 60 uh, and, um, and, uh, and, and just sort of devastating and uh, wonderful in this movie. And the movie pays homage to him uh, in ways that perhaps, perhaps it didn't think about. Wow. John Wick, Chapter 4. Christy, what did you think? First of all, Bill Skarsgård is awesome in this movie. (laughs) He knows exactly what movie he is in. He is vamping it up. Everything he wears is spectacular. He is having a good time as this very um, effete villain here. And you mentioned, Tim, the various cultural references here. Like, Chaz Stahelski has the bravery to ape one of the most famous cinematic cuts ever. He does the Lawrence of Arabia match cut. And when I saw that happen, I'm like, oh, that's bold. Oh, that's where we're going with this. That's impressive. Um, But yeah, it is way too long. When I first heard (laughs) that this is going to be two hours and 49 minutes, I was like, woohoo, more John Wick during our Oscars show. I'm like, yeah, more John Wick. We can't have enough. Two hours and 49 minutes is way too much. 
John Wick because while there is so much style and so much care that goes into the fight choreography, you know, Chad Stahelski is a former stunt coordinator. He really cares about letting us luxuriate in the complexity of, of the movements. Um, the individual fight scenes go on way too long to the point where it becomes numbing and to the point where like John Wick is beyond immortal. Like, yes, he's the Baba Yaga at this point and that gives him <laughs> some supernatural abilities. But there's a scene in a Berlin disco where he like falls off of a railing and like lands on his back on this concrete abutment and like should be dead from that and like gets up and fights more dudes. Um it's a lot of fun here and there. Yeah, I mean, it definitely the moves into the epic. It absolutely moves into the it's epic. It's crazy. Yeah. No, I, it's a lot of fun here and there. I, I mean, Keanu is a treasure, of course. Lance Reddick brings all kinds of warmth and wisdom and grace, and we'll talk about him later on. I, I love Keanu with um, Ian McShane again. If you like these movies, you'll love this movie, but there's just... It, it, it really is too much. And it's a lot like a video game at times, too, which will really appeal to a lot of viewers. But to me, that element of it did not. John Wick, Chapter 4, directed by Chad Stahelski, written by Shea Hatton and Michael Finch. It's rated R in wide release. A Good Person, drama starring Florence Pugh, Morgan Freeman, and Molly Shannon, written and directed by Zach Braff. Christy. So, once again, Zach Braff is in New Jersey. It's the place where he likes to make movies, and that is where Florence Pugh, we see her in the beginning living this sparkling life. She's a young woman named Allison. She is a talented singer and pianist. She is adored by everyone who knows her. She's about to get married, and she seems really happy. We see her at her engagement party. Um, Shinaza Uche is the young man she's going to marry. The next day, she is driving a car, and her soon-to-be sister-in-law and her husband are along with her for the ride to go check out bridal dresses, and they get in this horrible car accident, and Florence Pugh's character survives, and the other two die, and the rest of the film is about her redemption, her, her hitting bottom and getting really hooked on OxyContin and grappling with this survivor's remorse. And it's then how she comes back from that with the help of a really unlikely source of support, Morgan Freeman, who is the father of her former fiance, the father of this deceased young woman. And Lori Pugh can't help but be great. You know, there is such an authenticity to her presence. She makes such smart choices that feel raw and real. And there are several moments here that really ring true and are quite startling at times. There's a scene between her and Molly Shannon as her mom where they're having a huge fight over a bottle of pills in the bathroom. And it's shot so intimately and it's so intense, like you feel like you were in the middle of it and it's harrowing. It's very scary because really anything could happen in that moment. And then she had to do the obligatory thing that happens in so many sobriety films where she goes to a meeting and she shares her story and it's all one long take and... She's crying and she really brings it. She brings it in a lot of scenes. Um, but there are so many heavy-handed modeling choices that Zach Braff makes from a narrative perspective. There are some outlandish things these characters do that make no sense. There's a very heavy-handed metaphor involving Morgan Freeman's character and his obsession with model trains and how that speaks to like our desire to create a perfect life for ourselves that's impossible to attain. So it's got its moments, but it's a very frustrating film for me overall. Mm. A good person, Tim. Yeah, yeah, a good person, the thing we all think we are, we all claim to be, hope we are. Can we engage? Can, can something happen that can uh, render us unable to be a good person forever? Uh, redemption, as Chrissy says, and, and, and grief and forgiveness and responsibility, all issues and subjects of this film, sometimes spoken issues and subjects of this film which they never, ever should be. Uh, I love a good uh, single director, single writer kind of thing, that auteur thing, you know, because, you know, they can go one of two different ways, though. Sometimes they can be very cohesive and specific and pointed, and sometimes they can be a rambling mess. Zach's film airs toward the rambling mess. Uh, a lot of ideas here, and, 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 and somebody, uh, a co-writer, would have been able to say, no, not that, nope. Like that, you know, but when, you, when you're all by yourself, nobody says that. Um, the reason it doesn't become a rambling mess is because Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh are just so damn good. Uh, just so good. Even when they're saying things that they ought not to be saying because nobody <laughs> should be talking right now, uh, they're still doing it well.
A Good Person. From writer-director Zach Braff, Florence Pugh, Morgan Freeman, Molly Shannon star. The film's rated R. It's in select theaters. It's Film Week on LAist. 89.3 Larry Mantle joined by our critics. Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. And Tim Cogshell, film critic for Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com. As we continue, we're going to hear what they have to say about uh, the movie uh, Jasser, uh, the film uh, written and directed by Wahid Al-Khwazmi. We'll also hear about Tori and Lokita and um, Rodeo. Those are just a few of the films that we're going to be hearing about. Those are coming up on Film Week here on LAist 89.3. So good to have you with us. I hope the start of your weekend is going very well. We'll continue our conversation with our critics coming up momentarily. Remind you, if you miss any of the reviews on our regular broadcast on LAS 89.3, you can hear the full podcast of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or your audio, as well as at LAS.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Christy Lemire and Tim Cockshell. Up next is a film that's set in Memphis, written and directed by Wahid Al-Khwazmi. The film stars uh, Malik Rabani, and it's titled Jasir. Tim, mm. what did you think of Jasir? Well, this is just an excellent social drama. And it's original of the Dardan Brothers, which is interesting because we're going to be talking about the Dardan Brothers film uh, just coming up here in a moment. Uh, um, and this is a real-world drama about a Syrian refugee, a young man, about 25 years old, fled the war, lands in Memphis, searching for the American dream, not finding it. He, he works at a restaurant. Interestingly, for another Syrian family that's been in America a little bit longer and uh, left before the war and still have feelings about Syria that are not his feelings about Syria. He friends up with this brother who's also working at the restaurant who wants to be a rapper, and, 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 and there's, there's a daughter there who he loves him. And he has this neighbor, played by Lorraine Bracco. And man, is she a piece of work, and she is just wonderful in this movie. She's an such a good actor, and she smokes too much, and she's a little bit racist, and all of that. And, and, and you know what's going on, but he is this guy who is simply going to find that American dream. He's going to find it if it kills him. He will not stop being hopeful. Which is there's a difference between this film and a Dardan Brothers film. The Dardan's not always so hopeful. This movie will not give up because this young man will not give up. And that's what I loved about this movie. He gets beat down, but he will not stop getting back up. So you see the resiliency in the character and the acting performance by Malik Rabani? He's just wonderful. It's what, he, what he does, Malik speaks English fairly well, but his character doesn't. And that's, a, that's this thing that he engages in. He knows what that feels like when nobody can understand you. And what I also love about this movie is when we see his his American friends start taking the time to understand him. Uh, It's really a beautiful thing to watch. Lorraine Bracco even comes right. All right. The film uh, Jasir is shot in Memphis, again, written and directed by Wahid Al-Khwazmi. The film's rated R, and you can see it at the AMC Theater in Burbank, as well as the AMC location in the city of Orange. 
Tori and Lokita, a film from the Dardenne brothers from Belgium, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. The film stars Pablo Skills. Christy, what did you think of Tori and Lokita? Yeah, this is definitely not one of the Dardenne's more hopeful films. This is quite devastating, but so well made. And in their style, you know, that what they do is so understated. They create so much power from just the simplicity and the minimalism of their filmmaking. You know, quite often they'll just follow their subjects around. They are fascinated by the lives of people on the fringe immigrants, the working poor, people who have been marginalized, and they watch them with great sympathy and just great simplicity and let the drama of their lives play out. And that's what happens with this story. But a boy and a girl named Tori and Lokita, they're played by Pablo Schills and Jolie Mbundu. They are both non-actors. They've never worked before. And this is incredible, the realism that they bring to this and, and the poise that they both bring to this. They are immigrants from Africa and it's about how they are trying to survive like trying to piece together work they aren't really brother and sister they met on the boat and kind of got smuggled over together and have been you know for all intents and purposes are kin to each other at this point they each is all they have for the other and uh, it begins with this really riveting and kind of harrowing single shot on this teenage girl Lokita now she's being interrogated by you know, government workers trying to determine, is she really related to this boy? He's got papers. She does not. And it reminds me of that long single shot in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, where the young woman's being interrogated before she has an abortion. Um, just the range of emotions she has to show all at once. There's just nowhere to hide, you know, and, and it sets the tone for what's to come. It's about how these kids are piecing together work and how... Like, not only is the system, like, rejecting them, it is exploiting them. And grown-ups use them as drug dealers and worse. And uh, yet they they still, they fight for each other. They fight to survive. It's really, really hard to watch, but so well-made and so necessary. And these two kids are just great. And there are these glimmers of hope. There are these moments where they sing together or they play together because they are still just kids. Tori's probably only like 10 years old, you know, but has to have the the wisdom and the streetwise presence of someone much young, much much older rather. Um, so it's really well-made, but very hard to watch. Well, and that's not uncommon. As Tim was saying earlier, the Dardenne films can be mm. a tough watch, but yep. still an amazing film so often. Tori and Lokita, the film we're talking about, it won the uh, 75th anniversary prize at the Cannes Film Festival last year. It's in French with English subtitles. Tim, what do you think? Well, it was ex- extraordinary, this film. Yeah, he's about 10, she's about 14. He is he is wise, but she is brave. And, and they are wholly and fully dedicated to each other. Um, uh, and, and given that the Dan brothers do, in fact, uh, document mostly the sort of narrative lives of regular French folk, uh, working uh, workaday people in factories, uh, doing this and that around, the fact, whenever they turn their camera on air on the Arab population or the black African population is very important in the culture because what the Dardens are saying is these are everyday French folk and we are going to include them in our narrative canon. So he's speaking to the population, he's speaking to us, he's saying if you're thinking French, you gotta think about these people too and this is what we're doing to them. The film again, Tori and Lokita from the Dardenne brothers, Jean-Pierre and Luke, it's unrated. It's at Landmark's New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. The French film Rodeo stars Julie Ledru and Yanis Lafki. The film's written and directed by Lola Kiveron. Uh, Tim, what do you think of Rodeo? Another very, very good film in, in this tradition that we're talking about now. Uh, Julie Ledru is the name of the young woman, the young actress who plays Julie in this film. She's this odd girl who actually looks kind of odd. She has a, a great gap in her teeth. And she's ridiculously beautiful actually, but people use her looks against her. They call her ugly. Uh, she's, she, she's, she's also irritating. She's a liar and a thief. We see her lying and stealing all the time in this movie, and everybody around her kind of knows she's a liar and a thief, so they're, you know, uh, she, she, loves, she loves motorcycles, and this gang of boys who ride these motorcycles, that word's rodeo, rodeo. That's what they're referring to. It's the rodeo, this team of motorcycle boys riding around, and she wants to ride with them. They do tricks and race and all kinds of stuff, but the 
way she gets her motorcycles is by pulling a scam. Uh, she'll have one of these boys call and pretend to be her father. I'm going to buy this motorcycle for my daughter, this, this road bike for my daughter. I'm going to send her out to give it a ride. Just let her take it for a ride. If she likes it, I'll buy it. She goes out. She takes it for a ride. She steals it. Uh, and she falls into a group of thieves doing this. And we, we can see where this is going to go. The thing about it is Julie is probably the most insightful, uh, uh, the, the brightest person among all these folks. Uh, and, and, and she loves children. There's one young woman who has these kids, and she takes up with these children. But she gets involved with these people who are stealing these motorcycles and doing other things. And uh, it becomes a very difficult film. But again, it's the slice of life that I didn't know. I didn't know that there were French kids riding around doing all this kind of stuff. And I, and I loved that they took us into this world on the back of this young woman uh, so that we could see it from her perspective. Uh, it's a really, really good film. So these are three straight films we've been talking about that are these yeah. difficult slice-of-life yeah. movies. Yes, social dramas, just wonderfully done. This French film we're talking about, Rodeo, written and directed by Lola Kiveron. Uh, the film is unrated, and you can see it at the Lemley Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The Lost King, a British comedy starring Sally Hawkins, Steve Coogan, and Harry Lloyd. Stephen Frears, the director, uh, Stephen Coogan, and Jeff Pope are the writers of uh, the film. It's based on uh, the 2013 book, The King's Grave, The Search for Richard III. Christy, what did you think of The Lost King? This is not a bleak slice of life movie. <laughs> <laughs> now for something Hooray. totally different. Yeah. We broke our streak. Stephen Frears gives us something really comforting and sweet and solid and sincere. So as you mentioned, yes, this is based on a true story of this woman named Philippa Langley, who became obsessed with finding the actual burial spot of Richard III. Uh, she's played by Sally Hawkins. And just having Sally Hawkins show up and be herself is just so radiant and so compelling. Like she's got that smile that you just can't get enough of. Um, but there's such like vulnerability to her and believable fragility to this character. She suffers from chronic pain and she's small. And so people underestimate her when she goes to one person after another in, in the academic field and the ar archeological field and literature and anyone who will listen like i i think that he has been wronged through history and i think he's buried in this very specific place and i want to go and find him and um, people blow her off because she's a woman you know because she's middle-aged and so she has to overcome all these obstacles just to get anybody to listen and then of course there's the actual process of of digging him up all throughout the course of this Actual Richard III follows her around and he talks to her. Um, it is a magical realism element that Stephen Frears wisely underplays, plays it in an understated way. It's not like, ooh, like spectral Richard III floating in. It's the, the actor that she saw in a play portraying him. He's played by Harry Lloyd. And like they talk to each other on a park bench and it's like a normal conversation, but you know, he's not really there. Um, and so that could have been too cutesy, but they find just the right tone. I mean, Stephen Frears is 81 years old and has been doing this forever and has such an eclectic filmography between like dangerous liaisons and dirty, pretty things and the queen. And he just knows how to make a solid, efficient film. And that's what he has done here. No big surprises. Steve Coogan is Sally Hawkins' ex-husband and they have a sort of an interesting relationship. It's unusual. Um, it's nice. It's a nice yeah. movie. And we'll continue hearing about The Lost King, rated PG-13 in wide release. We'll hear what Tim has to say about it when we continue on Film Week on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Harole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. 
and where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Film Week on LA as 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Tim Cogshell and Christy Lemire. Christy was just telling us about the British comedy The Lost King, starring Sally Hawkins, directed by Stephen Frears. Tim, what did you think? Nice indeed. The the uh, Shakespeare, uh, written by Richard III, was written 100, 150, 160 years after Richard's death, right? Uh, so uh, the character uh, that we know, uh, my horse, my horse, my kingdom, the hunchback, the, the evil man who killed his nephews, all of that, that's from Shakespeare. Um, uh, and the the notion of Philippa and this group called the uh, Richard III Society is that none of that is true about him, that he was actually a very bright uh, king who maybe didn't have a, a, a hump in his back. We know now that he had scoliosis, so, you know, a hump, but he had, definitely had scoliosis. So all the sort of historical issues in this movie, finding his body and doing that all happened. That's cool. Philippa did that. Along with you guys. That's all great and neat and interesting. I don't know that I needed to go deep into the sort of interpersonal dynamics of her and her family. She has chronic fatigue syndrome and and her and her husband are kind of divorced but not really and, and all and all of these all that stuff is in there. And I'm like, mm. and, and, and you know, Richard kinda of walking around chatting with her and stuff like that. <laughs> Again, look, I'm not I'm not really sure. It's sweet, it's nice, but there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Really interesting stuff. And I think that that stuff was good enough for a movie uh, without all of this extra stuff. The Lost King, rated PG-13 in wide release. The documentary Gods of Mexico is directed by Helmut Dos Santos. Tim. Yeah, yeah. If you read, if you read the uh, the byline for this, the chapter line for this, it says it follows the resistance to modernization in rural Mexico, and I, and and that is so accurate. Um, there's almost nothing in this film but footage and an audio of these people working at the things that they do. We're with gold miners who work in a gold mine the old school way, pickaxe, shovel, water. Sometimes though they do have these gigantic boulder crushers uh, uh, that they literally feed rock into by shoveling and crushes and crushes and they work down deep, deep, deep in the mounds. Mules are, are, are the uh, uh, tool of choice that these people work with and we're, and we're with farmers who are doing hand farming. The cinematography is absolutely exquisite. Very often that this sort of crisp, stark black and white uh, film. Much of this work is doing in uh, the summer in various different places across the sort of Mexican landscape. The landscape is beautiful. These people, their faces—they have these, these ancient faces, these, these, these Incan faces uh, when they're out there in the sun doing this this work, and they sing and they dance, and then there are these little bits and pieces of the modern world that that drift in. Somebody has a transistor radio, and is that is that is that Kanye? What's that? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're here in this place yeah. where there is none of that. But every now and again, listen to it. Turn it on and listen to it. It will blow you away. There's no dialogue per se. Occasionally, folks talking to one another, but no dialogue per se. It's just, just the cicadas, the the, the the sound of fishing, what it sounds like when you are fishing. You know? Uh, it's, you don't think about something yeah, like that, yeah. but there's a sound that comes with that. It's fascinating. We're talking about the Mexican documentary Gods of Mexico from Helmut Dos Santos. The film is unrated, and you can see it at the Lumiere Cinema Music Hall in Beverly Hills. The mystery thriller The Tudor is directed by Jordan Ross, written by Ryan King, starring Garrett Hedlund, Victoria Justice, and Noah Schnapp. Christy, The Tudor. This movie is very silly, and I can't decide whether it's so bad it's good or just plain old bad. <laughs> like, it, it veers into so bad it's good territory eventually, and it fully embraces its obnoxiousness. But, like, until then, it's on very shaky ground. So, Garrett Hedlund stars as the titular tutor. He is paid a lot of money by wealthy New York families to help their kids get into Ivy League schools and, you know, do better on exams and all that. And there's a whole montage of these awful spoiled kids and their, you know, detached moneyed parents. And this is who he has to deal with all day, every day. And there's an intriguing premise there, almost like they're doing 
like a fictional version of the Operation Varsity Blues scandal, you know, almost like they're trying to do an, another kind of eat the rich movie along the lines of the menu or something like that, like, like satirizing these vapid privileged lives. There's a premise of an idea there that had some hope and then it becomes something really wildly different. So um, Garrett Hedlund's character, Ethan, gets hired through his agency to go out to this just palatial waterfront mansion to go tutor this kid named Jackson, played by Noah Schnapp, who was Will Byers on Stranger Things. And uh, this kid is kind of odd and self-possessed and kind of unsure of himself, but like an incredible student. And he's really smart and like obviously does not need this help at all. But it's thousands and thousands of dollars to stay there all week with this guy on these like huge sprawling grounds. And it turns out that there's something more devious afoot here that this tutor has been ensnared in. His girlfriend is pregnant. He needs the money. Um, there's just nothing to any of these people. There's nothing to these characters. They're like all one single idea. And then once it veers into actually dangerous territory, it just gets so silly, so laughable. Like, how did we even get here? So this is not a good movie. <laughs> it, I wouldn't recommend it, the but it's almost, it's almost terrible. The tutor <laughs> is rated R. It's in select theaters. And we have a restoration this week of the 1952 Rory Calhoun starring Western way of a gaucho, Tim. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack, uh, Jack Toyer, uh, Gene Tierney in this film. 1952, uh, American film set in Argentina, which is great for all kinds of, of reasons, right? Uh, shot in location there. Uh, uh, it's it's a, a original visually. There's no Monument Valley to lean on and all that stuff. Original face and all that. But that's not why it was shot there for artistic reasons. It was shot there for money. Uh, right after the war, there were all these currency controls, and, and a lot of the studios had money offshore all over Europe and Argentina. Fox had a whole lot of money in Argentina. Argentina that they could not repatriate, so they decided to make the movie in Argentina. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a really sort of interesting story, but it, it did provide for a movie that did not look like the other Westerns of the day, because it was just from a different place. It didn't make a dime at the time, <laughs> but it's a beautiful movie. And glad, glad it's restored, I'm oh, yes, sure. Gorgeous, gorgeous. We're talking about Way of a Gaucho, which has been restored from its 1952 release. The film's unrated. You can see it at the American Cinematheque in Los Feliz. We want to take a moment to remember Lance Reddick, who died of natural causes earlier this week at the age of 60. One of my favorite roles of his was as LAPD chief Irvin Irving in the popular Amazon streaming series Bosch. Let's listen to a clip from the pilot episode of Bosch, where Reddick's character is talking to Detective Harry Bosch, played by Titus Welliver. Bosch, deputy chief, been subpoenaed too. I'm only here to show my support. Yeah. You've got me wrong, Detective. You have to understand something. My primary objective is to protect the reputation of Los Angeles Police Department. And we don't wash our laundry in public, especially not in federal court. So you're not here to hang me out to dry? On the contrary. The department exonerated you. They had to. It was a good shooting. And here in the John Wick franchise, Reddick uh, played Sharon, a slick concierge of the Continental Hotel, who was sympathetic to the needs of Mr. Wick. This from the first film in the series back in 2014. Good evening, Mr. Wick. Good evening. How may I be of service? He's a doctor. Yes, sir. 24-7. Send him up, please. Yes, sir. How good's your laundry? I'm sorry to say that no one's that good. No, I thought not. May I suggest a drink, sir? Bourbon, perhaps. That sounds perfect. We have less than a minute, but Tim, your thoughts about Reddick and, and his versatility as an actor. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. First started running into Lance back on Oz, back early 2000, something like that. I was doing journalism, so I would bump into Lance. Lance was a Yaley, and we both thought it was absolutely hysterically funny <laughs> that the Yaley was playing that guy that he was playing on Oz, and, on, on Oz. and over the years, he moved into the uh, to the suits and the ties and the, and, and authority the roles. Authority yeah. roles, all that kind of stuff. He, he was just a wonderful, wonderful actor, and 
people just loved him. Great musician, too, Lance Reddick. Look up some of his catalog. Christy Lemire, quick, uh, quick item on Lance Reddick. He just brought such elegance and grace and wisdom to the John Wick franchise. He was great on The Wire. And also beloved for his voice work on the video game Destiny 2. He was wow. the voice of Zavala. And Which players he are now paying homage to him there as well. All right. Thanks so much. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Willem Dafoe has been making movies for the past six decades, going all the way back to Heaven's Gate in 1979. Now the 67-year-old Dafoe pops up in the occasional big-budget superhero stories, such as Spider-Man No Way Home. But he's generally drawn to less commercial projects, like The Lighthouse and The Florida Project. In his new movie, Inside, Dafoe plays an art thief who becomes trapped inside a luxury high-tech penthouse when a heist doesn't go as planned. Defoe recently talked with LAist Arts and Entertainment reporter John Horn about the film and his career. Let's talk about um, Inside. I have a f- question first about working with a novice director. An actor once told me actors love to imagine the best version of a film when they're working with a first-timer, and they have to be careful to also imagine the worst version of what that movie might be when they're working with a first-time director. When you think about working with somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience, what do you need to hear or see that makes you comfortable taking a leap with that person? Uh, To match your story, which is an interesting story, uh, a quote from uh, an actor, I always am haunted by the fact that Gene Hackman, when I worked with him doing Mississippi Burning, I don't mean to throw him under the bus, but Gene said, let me give you a piece of advice. Never work with a first-time director because for me, it's always been a disaster. Uh, I liked working with Gene a lot, but I sure as hell didn't follow his advice. Listen, this, this film inside, the premise, which is really a good premise and, and you know, suggested lots of opportunities to me, was this guy's baby. I didn't know him from Adam, and there wasn't a lot of uh, footage to uh, see because he made a documentary and he's made commercials. Okay, so that's risky. But you start to work with him. You work with him on the script. You work and you see him develop. the. There's one location, and it, the design is very important because the house is a character. So to see him take all these ideas and synthesize them into a design that really worked well for the movie was impressive. And also uh, his care of, he had someone curate the art collection that is featured in the movie and that had to be legit or the movie won't work. And I liked how he did that. So he was a guy that had a great culture, knew how to connect different things. And I, I liked, he seemed smart and savvy. And I knew that it would be him and me and the crew. So it suggested a great opportunity for collaboration. And I trusted that, um, you know, he'd be a good partner. We don't know anything about this character. There is no exposition, no backstory, which I love. But a lot of people say, why is he there? What happened to him? Where's the rest of his group? What does he need? And yet there's nothing like that. I had no interest in who this guy was because for me, The movie starts with him being trapped there. You know, he enters, he's an art thief, that's all I have to know. And then, really, the character is revealed through the actions. He is what he does, and anything else is not important. And the beautiful thing, between those two things, you're never pointing outside. You're real, it has a presence that's really incredible, and I think that's why it's easy, not easy, but it's not a drag. I, I find uh, the pace is pretty good considering you're watching one actor. And I'm not bragging here. It's how it's built, you know? So um, it has a presence that one thing is, you know, implies another. And then there's a reaction. Then there's an action, a reaction. And then it takes a rhythm. And the film has a life of itself. And once you get into that rhythm and you give yourself to the narrative, You've got 
you know, it carries you. And then plus you've got all these moments of reflection between the big events. So it was a beautifully um, balanced uh, experience for me. A lot of actors love to have interplay and it could be interplay with another actor, a group of actors. They could be performing, they could be singing a song. You don't get that. You don't get to bounce off of anybody. You are all alone. Is that a challenge or an opportunity um, or a gift? All three, all three. I mean, I do have stuff to bounce off of. I've got these works of art. I've got the house. You know, if acting is really about doing things, I'm doing things. And we really leave behind certain kind of tropes and social conventions. There are some things that we pay service to the narrative because there's a very strong narrative. But there's also all these themes and these considerations that just arise. And the beautiful thing is, I think the audience makes the movie with us. For people that are freaks about narrative, I think you have this kind of thriller narrative, you know, this survival narrative. But beyond that, just by the juxtaposition and the weird combination of events and things, a lot of interesting themes are evoked. And what those themes are really depends on the audience because it depends what they bring to it, what their concerns are. And for me, those are sometimes, sometimes the best movies because the audience is engaged. It's not a passive exercise. It's really involved and they have a commitment and they might learn something and they may be changed and they may be turned on. So I am only, I'm part of the fabric. We're doing this stuff. I didn't feel alone. I had a whole crew. We're making stuff up. I have this beautiful house. I have this art to play with. So yes, I like to work with other actors. I don't like the idea of a one man show. That sounds egotistical and vain and like a show of your craft. That's not what's happening here because I'm doing very simple things, but I think I'm doing them with a level of commitment to having them work on me. The last time we talked, I think, was around the Florida Project, and I did something on The Lighthouse as well. And in those movies, you are a, you play a character who is fixed in, in geographical location. You don't oh. go anywhere. <laughs> you are stuck. So <laughs> right? Yeah, my fear. Yes. <laughs> no, but but you are stuck. Florida Project, you're in this hotel. Lighthouse, you're in a lighthouse. Inside, you're yep. stuck inside this room. Is that something that you find exhilarating, that, that your characters in these instances, and maybe in other things I'm not thinking about, don't have to travel? The travel is psychological and verbal. It's not physical. You know, I hear all these things, and I just think about my personal reaction to this, because I like to travel. And I like, you know, I don't think it's human nature to like change, but I do love going to different situations because it challenges your sense of what is normal and what is important. So it kickstarts curiosity. It, it keeps us questioning, which I don't think, unless you travel, unless you stimulate yourself, I don't think that's human nature because we crave, you know, uh, we crave regularity. I, at least most people do. I think even I do, but I kick myself to do something else and it's always very rewarding. As far as the characters, I, actually, I like a sense of place because it becomes very specific. I like specificity. If if you don't have a sense of place, I don't know, then what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? I've always been, in, in a lot of work through the years, particularly theater work and some film work, the place, the, the locale has been very, very important to me. Directors are important, but the location is very important because it represents an adventure uh, to learn something. No, and I think in a way, it's exactly like traveling. You're going to a specific place and how that place affects you is is reflected in how you your outward invisible expressions of acting. Um, and I think it makes sense that even if you're stuck as a character in these places, the fact that you like to travel is not contradictory. In fact, I think it's part and parcel. Um, I'm wondering, as actors of, of any gender, age, the kinds of parts they are offered change. 
as an actor gets more experience, his or her or their priorities tend to change as well. And I'm wondering if your priorities in terms of what you find rewarding or challenging has evolved in the last five, 10 years, however you would define it. Are there things that you're attracted now to that you wouldn't have been 10 years ago and things that 10 years ago you couldn't wait to do that now you go, ah, not for me? I don't know. I kind of feel like in a funny way I'm the same person I was when I was a kid. Uh, just I, it manifests differently and it's conditioned by what's available to you. Right now, it's been a very good period. I've done very different things and I've had lots of nice opportunities lately. There have been times where I felt like those opportunities weren't coming, but what I aspired to, what I wished for, somehow has never changed. Because, you know, it's like often a, a common interview question is, what role would you like to play? And my common often answer is, I don't know. I don't know a role until I get there. So, you know, that's a relative of your question in the respect of, it's, it's a whole package. When, when someone proposes something to me, it's the people, it's the director, it's the where, it's the what are we trying to do? It's the level of commitment. It's what is somewhat, you know, some degree, what this film is for, you know, how it happens. All that stuff is in the swirl. So, you know, I don't even know what I think. I just react to intuitively to all those different elements. The director, Ang Lee, 10 years ago, told me something that has always stuck with me. He said, I, he said, I only want to do things that scare me. Um, and it's just like, you know, that he he's not going to make the same movie every time. He wants to do things that are challenging. Let me ask you this question. Are you self-critical? How do you know if or when you've done good work? Uh, I'm sure I'm self-critical. In fact, you know, people always tease me that when people say things to me, good or bad, I like say, Okay, okay, <laughs> fine, fine. You know, I don't really engage. Um, I think I'm self-critical, but I think your lessons are learned by intuitively. I think you know, and it, you don't, you can't immediately articulate uh, the lessons you learn. So, particularly when you throw yourself into something, and I try to throw myself into things, maybe that in itself isn't a good thing. But that's. I think you have to make the gesture. You have to, you know, you have to make the action before you can reflect on it. So self-critical, of course I'm self-critical because I don't want to make I don't want to make silly movies. Um uh, but at the same time, I don't want to be self-serious. So yeah, I okay, I am self-critical, but not like at, for acting as a craft, like as an expression of, you know, an extension of my personal life. This is my uh, thing to do. This is what I like doing. And this is what I feel like I'm meant to do. So I want to take care of it, particularly because I've been, for the most part, pretty fortunate. So you, I, I don't, you know, you want to avoid cynicism and you want to avoid, avoid uh, a certain kind of ego, e egotism. You know, you got to cultivate, even if you don't have it naturally, a certain humility, because there's no way, you know, there's no knowledge without humility. And I, I feel really strong about that. Let me ask you this last thing. The last year at the movie, the last year at the box office, all 10 of the highest grossing films were sequels, reboots, knockoffs, prequels, whatever. They were all brands. And... At the same time, movies that had really distinct points of view, with the exception of everything, everywhere, all at once, failed. Tar, She Said, Women Talking, The Fablements, nobody went to see them. And that, to me, is a bad thing. And it also means, I think, that directors who have a point of view, and I'm thinking about Yorgos Lanthimos, with whom you recently worked, become more important. And I know you're probably not trying to balance the scales but do you think directors, like the director of Inside, the director Yorgos Lanthimos, that they're that p directors with a vision that is not about sequels or brands, is their value elevated now, or does it become more important for the audience to remind them that not everything has to have a Roman numeral after it? Uh, both those things. I mean, 
I think there's going to be a certain kind of fatigue uh, because of the all the streaming platforms and there's a lot of production and that's great it, you know for actors it's great for people in the movie industry a lot is going on but there's certainly a fatigue that comes from I, I think people's experience of going on you know getting home and getting on one of these sites and they say what are we going to watch tonight honey and they go and they say oh I like that person I liked his last movie and her last movie it's they watch two minutes. No, let's do something else. Oh, let's do something else. And all those get counted as views. And after about 15 tries, they go to bed. You know, I still think the theater experience is very important. I still think, you know, thinking out of the box and free thinking and new ideas are important. And these visions, obviously, I'm attracted to auteur directors, not only for the experience of, you know, being material for them, uh, you know, being there their their creature their their uh, animal in the landscape not only for that but i think it's important because while numbers numbers you know aren't everything money is not everything and i think you know particularly in capitalism you know the problem is we don't grow things well it becomes tap heavy and you always got to grow things well and after a time if you only pay attention to what's hot and what what you know makes money then it has shallow roots and it's like a tree with shallow roots it'll fall and then you'll have nothing and you see other countries that don't have these traditions are starting to come up and make really great work and we've seen over the years that you know hollywood used to have a huge majority of the market overseas and in the world that's shrinking, 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 because people are responding to homegrown products because it's it's personal, it's expressed, it's not just about muscle. Now, I think when you're talking about sequels and brands and all that, they are important. People enjoy them. They serve a purpose. It's not just, I can't get stinky about it. I'm involved in some of those and I enjoy it not only creatively, um, but I think they make people, uh, they engage people. Well, um, I, I <laughs> love this film. I love talking with you. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate right. your taking time out. And I don't know what, sure. where you are or what you're doing, but have as much fun as can be had. Okay. Yeah. Bye -bye. That's actor Willem Dafoe in conversation with our John Horn. Inside is in limited theatrical release, playing at the Landmark Theater's Pasadena, as well as other local locations. From all of us at Film Week on LAS 89.3, have a wonderful weekend. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.